0: Hello there. I'm Patrick Stroth. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Bud Moore, founding partner of Blesco Industries, which is a lower middle market private equity firm based in Dallas, Texas. Bud, thanks for joining the podcast today.
1: Hi, Patrick. I appreciate you including me.
0: The reason why we reached out to you is that there is a growing ocean of opportunities in the lower middle market. There are more and more opportunities we are seeing not only in here in Silicon Valley with technology, but throughout the country for a variety of reasons. And as I speak with uh, experts in M&A, uh, I'm struck by uh, this growing uh, chasm between the middle market and upper market uh, companies and the amount of services and resources available to them. And then you get to the lower middle market and there is just this crying need for not, not only capital, but expertise, guidance, and so forth. And it's, there's just this wanting audience out there that's really looking for help. And I think firms like Valesco industries are ideal to come in and provide just, just the types of, uh, help that they need to move on. Um, I didn't want to steal your thunder, but if you translate or define the term Valesco, that means to grow strong, which is a very, very helpful name. And that's where a lot of, uh, the lower middle market companies are trying to do. They're trying to do that before they ultimately go to an exit. So I appreciate you making yourself available before we get into all things Valesco. Uh, Let's talk about you. How did you get to this point in your career?
1: So mine was a bit of a circuitous route. I started out actually in investment banking on the sell side, Uh, did that for a number of years and uh, in a market downturn, decided I would switch to the buy side and did that for about four or five years until I found myself uh, in a place that I was so full service for my clients that I felt like I was a private equity guy and not getting paid for it, so I thought I'd fix that problem and actually get into the private equity side of the industry. And did that in 1994 as an it's what today is referred to as an independent sponsor. Uh, so our ideas, our uh, muscle, and putting that behind companies to help them grow and have become a bigger version and a better version of what they were when we made our investments. So did independent sponsor uh, work really until uh, the Great Recession, uh, the 2000 late 2007, early 2008 time frame? And during that period of time, uh, we had exited almost all of our investments, uh, I'd, I'd like to say, because we were brilliant and saw a recession coming, but really more so, people found value in what we had, and in that particular market, were paying quite well for what we built. So we sold what we had, and in a, in a private moment, sat back and thought about what we hadn't done that we should do next, and thought raising a private equity fund might be a great idea. And so uh, we set off to do that and raised our first uh, formal fund in two thousand and eleven. I guess the lesson that I learned from that is if you'd like a lesson in humility, you should ask everyone you know for money in the midst of the worst recession they 've ever seen. but uh, fortunately for <laughs> yeah. us it was fortunately for us, it was successful, and uh, that 's led into a successive fund and we 've had uh, great success in putting that to work and what for us is lower, our lower middle market companies, and we kind of define that as twenty five to seventy five million dollars in revenue.
0: Okay. Uh, and then the industries that uh, you target being based in Dallas, people are going to assume it's either, and now, uh, this is a Californian speaking, but if you're based in Dallas, it's either you're doing something in the energy or the cattle industry. Tell us tell us what, are, I, what are your specialty areas.
1: It's a great assumption. Uh, we're actually kind of embarrassed being here in Texas. We've never actually done an oil and gas transaction, and we really regretted that several years ago and went out and spent quite a bit of time Uh, doing a white paper on whether or not we should invest in the energy industry. And what we discovered was we just weren't smart enough to do that. That's a very complicated Mm -hmm. industry. So for better or worse for us, we've really focused on manufacturing, value-added distribution, and business services. And that's been our focal point for a long time. Uh, if you take a look at industries, there are some industries where we've had uh, better luck in than others. Uh, The food industry has been uh, good for us, Uh, heavy equipment, things of that nature. But I would tell you we're looking really more for a unique profile than a particular industry. And in doing that, uh, we find really great niche market companies that we've had good success in growing and building.
0: When you say unique profile, either, either operationally, uh, a need there fitting um, location, what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so and uh, we kind of boil this down to three basic financial characteristics which define a broader list of operational characteristics for us. Uh, we take a look at the EBITDA margin Uh, you know our principles say it needs to be 10 percent or greater i would tell you most of our investments are far greater than 10 percent we look at working capital efficiency uh, being defined as inventory and accounts receivable as a ratio to sales being 30 percent or less and we look at fixed asset utilization uh, compared to sales four turns or greater what that tells us is we've got a company that is in a niche market in its industry It's able to produce, uh, it doesn't burn working capital, it generates working capital, and doesn't have to invest every dollar of earnings into its next dollar of growth. So that's just roughly speaking kind of the principles that we've operated under. And as we've applied that against industries that we've looked at and invested in, you'll find really a a broad variety of things, all the way from aerospace to heavy equipment to food manufacturing. Uh, We even currently own uh, Mm -hmm. one of the largest uh, producers of drug testing for professional and amateur sports in the world. Oh, so cool. it, it's a wide variety of, of things that we've invested in, but what we like a lot, and we think this is true across numerous industries, uh, even in an industry that people would consider to be unattractive, there are always one or two players that have figured out how to do it extraordinarily well. And what we're looking to do is invest in those companies, work with that team to be able to continue to professionalize and build that business and really grow it into something of of true significance.
0: One of the things you mentioned earlier was value-added distribution is value-added. Explain that for me. Sure,
1: value-added distribution, as we take a look at distribution, commodity-oriented products uh, really aren't of much interest to us. And we would define that as products that generally carry kind of a 20 or 25% gross margin, resulting in maybe a 5%, 6%, a net margin at the end of the day. Unfortunately, if you wanna grow in a distribution business like that, you're investing this year's earnings and next year's growth, and you really don't really generate any free cash flow for your investors. You just invest in the business with uh, you know with your end being when you decided to stop doing that. So for us, we look at businesses that are taking products and doing something tangible to them. A great example, uh, we invested in a business a few years ago, that was producing high school promotional and high school fundraising items. So uh, think of it as your local sports team for your high school uh, that instead of buying uh, cookie dough or pretzels or things that you probably really don't want to support the team, uh, you'd go to our online portal and you'd buy the team's sweatshirt or t shirt or ball cap and you'd support the team that way. Uh, we were mm-hmm. buying substrates mm-hmm. that were already manufactured, t shirts weren't anything that we were making. Uh, But we would put on them the school's insignia and then sell them out to their fan base. And to us, that was value added distribution. And, you know, that's the type of thing that we think really has, you know, great consumer desire in the marketplace. And we really like businesses like that that have figured out a creative way to address a a customer or consumer want or need.
0: As I was researching your organization and uh, looking through your website, it's Unmistakable that you see this undercurrent uh, talking about not only the financial component of what you're doing and adding value to your investments and so forth, but there's uh, a real moral and ethical commitment that seems to drive your operations. Can you talk about that, please?
1: Sure. we when we look at the at investing in lower middle market businesses, We really can't make the claim that our money is greener than anyone else's money. There are a lot of investors that try to invest into that space. Uh, What we focus on is how do we do the right thing for the business, the right thing for the employees, the right thing for the community. Uh, It's it's something that's extremely important to us. The and the way we look at it is, you know, every day the companies that we're invested in are providing hundreds of jobs for people in the community that allow them to have mortgages, allow them to have, you know pay for their family's expenses and overhead and really creates the future for them and their community. And so that's extremely important to us. So rather than just putting money into a business, we really like uh, being able to come in and make a difference in the business, to make it a bigger and better company so that people have a career and not just a job. And, you know, you'll see that throughout our companies and the way we've invested in teams and in areas. uh, Not all of our companies are in a, a lower income community, but many of the people that work for our businesses may go home tonight uh, to our lower income community and so we're we're respectful of that and you'll find that uh, better than 60% of our employees uh, are minorities in the businesses that we've invested in you'll find that we have uh, promoted uh, women and minorities into positions of leadership within the companies and so we really we believe strongly in people that want to work hard and apply their abilities uh, that we should be giving them the opportunity to succeed and That's been a driving principle for us. In addition to that, we try and spend a lot of time working with the companies themselves to help people with the vision of how they get better in terms of their business. And I think that's something that not everyone in private equity actively does. And we've prided ourselves on doing that for a long time.
0: I think as I got into working in mergers and acquisitions, um, you have a pre preconceived notion on on how the players work and the relationships and so forth. And then when you get deeper into it, as you see, particularly if you're a, a you know a target company out there and you've got more than one option for a prospective buyer or partner financial partner, it's not always the top line uh, number that's out there that leads to a successful close or a successful exit. Um, I always look at this as, you know, this, this isn't company A buying company. B, it's people working together. Mergers and acquisitions is people. And one of the great value adds that I think private equity, your entire industry can deliver, particularly for owners and founders, is they can only grow so large on their own. And to take that next step, they need partners to get them there. Otherwise, they may take a misstep or, or you know, not, not get to where they want to get. And, you know, the the concept of private equity, where I'm sure you guys do this, too, is, you know, making a partial investment or maybe they roll over some equity. It is amazing how an owner or founder may sell 60, 70 percent of the equity in their firm to a private equity uh, company. And then five years later, their remaining 30 or 40 percent is worth significantly more than the original uh, batch of equity they had sold over. And I think that's just that second bite of the apple is is something I did not know about with private equity, equity until I got into the business. And boy, that's a real great thing, particularly for the people that are responsible for coming up with these companies and these services that, in most cases, didn't exist until the owners and founders created them. And I think that's a great uh, thing you do. Um, as you look, you know, you've been involved with this for a while. Are you seeing any trends in m a that you can comment on?
1: Well, I think the ones that, that everyone sees out there right now is there's just a lot of capital uh, seeking return. You know, the public markets have been uh, pretty good over the last year or two, but just in general, if you look over a more extended period, you know, those types of returns are, are not projected to continue. And so uh, people are looking for returns. And as they look for returns, alternative investments of which private equity is one uh, tend to drive a lot of interest. and I think it's different. In the lower middle market, uh, looking at putting your money to work there is different than putting it to work in a KKR or a Blackstone or someone like that. Uh, this is money that's going to work uh, for which you're going to have to put elbow grease behind it to really make it pay off in a right way. So as money comes into the marketplace, I think it has the hazard of increasing prices. It's not great for us. It's great for sellers. Uh, but as it increases prices, you've really got to have a plan what you're going to do with the business because you can't just put money in and step away and hope that that works out so we think uh, that the real trend that's going on right now is we can't change pricing so what what we need to do is change how we look at the value proposition and i think if you're going to step up and pay a larger price for a company in this market you have to be convinced of how you're going to grow that business going forward uh, it, it won't be for a flat company. It'll be for a growth company. So I think right now, lots of capital in the marketplace. I think people looking for ways to grow that business and grow that enterprise are really the, the big things that we're seeing going on. And then uh, what I hope I'll continue to see is more and more people focusing on the operations side of the business to help make that plan for growth really come true. Uh, because it's uh, it's all great on day one when you see the hockey stick projection of, what we're going to do over the next five years but you've actually got to execute on that to be able to make it real
0: i, th- I think also that there are uh, if if you get a, a target at the right price that capital tends to be a little more patient than than other capital and so I think it also, it, it goes, it goes in with, with that where you really do have to have not just this idea of an investment, but okay, now, now, how do, how do we make it work five years down the road from now? And, and I think there's a lot more, uh, focus on, um, on that delivery than just we have to get this, this target right now at, at, at whatever price.
1: No, I, I think your statement is right as far as, you know, look how you look at the investment, how you want to optimize it. But, the thing that we try and keep in mind, is it's really more than uh, just the day of the investment. Uh, this And it's more than, than financial economics. If you want the economics to turn out in your favor, you've really got to get the team behind you. Uh, the people that you're investing in, uh, they have a business. And yes, we're buying, in some cases, patents, and we're certainly buying brick and mortar, and we're buying machinery and equipment. But what we're really investing in is people. Uh, and we've got to work with those people to help them be better at what they're doing. We've got to create a relationship that makes them want to grow and build their business. We have to give them an understanding of how they win uh, in this process, and I think doing all those things together really makes for the right investment in in our experience. If you're selling a business, this is the most one of the most precious assets in your life. Uh, it's really it's more of your family in some cases than your family itself. Uh, you see people more that you work with. You're there Five days a week, if not longer, you're there for long hours. And when you're ready to exit, you have a lot of personal connection to these people. And when you sell, you want to make sure that you're selling or taking on an investor that's got the same passion for helping and working with those people and growing them that you had. And I think that's part of what makes an exit meaningful uh, for people that are really looking to do it the right way.
0: But quick question. we We didn't cover this when we spoke earlier, but I'm just off the top of my head. Have, have you guys on any of your acquisitions or your, your transactions, have you guys used rep and warranty? And I'm just curious if, if you have, what kind of experience you had with it?
1: Yeah, we've used rep and warranty on numerous of our transactions and really made that uh, almost a universal standard practice probably three years ago. Uh, we've uh, we found it to be, it, it's not coverage that we have very often had any type of claims on, but I can tell you it makes our closing process much easier. Uh, Dealing with the representations and warranties inside of a purchase and sale agreement is one of the scariest things that I think sellers deal with. Uh, They don't want to have their big payday and then turn around and write checks back to the company. They really don't want to deal with big escrows that everyone's going to argue about later uh, whether or not there should be a claim or not. And so uh, what we found by using rep and warrant insurance, it's really eliminated Uh, many of the discussions about what the reps and warranties should look like. It comes down to a very standard set of reps and warranties. There's a very minimal exposure on the seller's part. And from an insurance standpoint, to the extent that you have a bad circumstance, uh, that's why you have the insurance protection there to be able to cover that eventuality. And we found that to be a really seller-friendly process. And so we've adopted that over the last few years as our standard.
0: I, I could not have said any better than that, so I won't. (laughs) Thanks very much for that. Uh, Bud, how can our audience reach you? How can they find you?
1: Probably the easiest way is through our website, uh, valescoind.com. That's V-A-L-E-S-C-O-I-N-D.com. On there, we have all of our bios, uh, our history, many of the videos on the management teams that we've worked with, as well as our contact information for easy access.
0: And I would say it's, it's a story that is worth reading and worth following bud moore thank you very much for joining us today
1: patrick thanks i appreciate you having me on